Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. My driver is helping people do better sooner because our architecture schools, in my opinion, are failing us, especially architecture schools, but engineering schools just as much. Even construction management schools probably get it the best. Had I known a lot of the things earlier that I know now, that I could have known earlier, it would have been such a game changer for me to have gotten that education much earlier in my career. And I feel a responsibility to give back what I've been given. Welcome to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with the CSI Kraken herself, Sharice Lakeside. Sharice is a mentor and a teacher. She's the senior spec writer at RDH Building Science, and she's the host of RCAT's Detailed Podcast. All right, welcome back to Context and Clarity Live. If you're new around here, you probably don't realize any difference. But if you're are a longtime Context and Clarity Live participant, I'm going to say it's a new date and time. This is our third week, I think, in this new time slot. And I am joined by my co-host, Katie Kanga. So welcome, Katie. Glad that you are here with us all the way from Minnesota. Minnesota. Like we, we talked about this last week. We were kind of we're, we're anchoring the middle of the country here. We've got a guest back in the green room. 
you know, based on based on that uh, nickname, I would think they're probably busting out of the uh, of the green room by now. We're going to have to release the Kraken. But uh, our guest today is a mentor, a teacher, and a speaker. She's a tweeter, definitely a tweeter, <laughs> and a board member. She's a senior spec writer for RDH Building Science, the Hans William Meyer Award winner for innovation of certification programs. She is the CSI Kraken, and she's the host of RCAT's podcast. And if, you're, if you've been around here at all, you know that RCAT is a friend of Entree Architect um, and, and everything architecture, really. So um, she's the host of the RCAT podcast, Detailed. Sharice Lakeside, welcome to Context and Clarity <laughs> Live. Good morning, or morning here, at least. It is morning there. Thanks for Thank giving up for having us. me. <laughs> Oh, it's not its not that early in the morning. I know. Nice to be here. Yeah, Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. And uh, you and I have known each other for a long time, um, been friends for a long time. So it's fun to have have you on the show. Um, I, I'm going to, I want to go back because a lot of us know the nickname CSI Kraken. <laughs> Where did that come from? Where'd that nickname come from? It's, it's really a silly story. I came into CSI super, super late in my career. Raising a family, everything that went along with that, I didn't think I had the time. And so I joined CSI a little over 11 years ago. And by taking the CDT course, that's what kind of, they're really good in Portland, in Portland CSI of noticing who looks semi-interested in something and getting you involved very quickly. So before I was done with that CDT course, I hadn't even been to a chapter meeting. My instructor who became one of my mentors and the person who put me up for fellowship came up to me and said, you need to be on the board. I'm, I'm like, I don't even know you people. <laughs> I haven't even been to a meeting yet. No, we need you on the board. And so within the first year, I was on the board of Portland CSI and we were having a conversation and I don't know how much time you've spent around a bunch of spec writers, but sometimes when you get a bunch of them in a room, we could have some rather lengthy conversations about things. And um, I'm kind of an efficiency expert, like, let's just get her done. So, you know, I had been quiet the first first couple board meetings. So I was like, hey, you know, can I share an idea? And just started saying, how about you do this and you do this and you do this, I'll do this, we're done, bam, let's move on. Does that, that sound good? And the president at the time, um, lovely gentleman, muttered under his breath, oh my God, release the Kraken. <laughs> And it just stuck. So then I started tweeting with hashtag CSI Kraken because I thought it was funny and it took on a life of its own. So now there are actually CSI Kraken all over the country. There are okay. chapters that give out CSI Kraken awards. It was never meant to be about me. I just have the biggest mouth out of all of them. But we just started our own little movement. People who kind of just kind of step up, get things done is, was with the intent, intent behind it. I just have the biggest mouth. So... And the hashtag. So that, that's how hashtag. I got the name. That's how I got the go. name. It's like, we got to get this stuff done faster, people. Yeah. Um, and we have. The, the chapter's done some amazing things. Yeah. Well, and, so that's where it comes so, from. So that, that's a really interesting story. I mean, you you pass the CDT or you go through the, the CDT and before you're even really involved in the chapter now, all of a sudden, you know, fast. I don't know what the time frame is here, but it seems like a few weeks or, or months, all of a sudden you're the CSI Kraken. There's obviously a lot of involvement between the CDT being a fellow, 
you know, uh, at large on the board now. Um, why, why stay involved for so long? Why immerse yourself in, in that particular, I, I mean, I know that particular association aligns directly with, with your day job, so to speak, but, but what you do, but, but why so much involvement over all the years? Well, I don't, I, you know, and, and I, I joke that CSI is the best kept secret in the industry. A lot of people, when I mention something about CSI, their first reaction is, I don't, I'm not a spec writer. I don't need that. And, and they don't truly understand what we do in CSI, which is we don't just teach spec writing. We teach project delivery education from cradle to grave. And so in CSI, unlike many organizations, any discipline is an equal member at the table. So we have all disciplines. I, I tell, I tell my, the young professionals that I mentor, join, if you're an architect, join AIA. You got to learn your craft somewhere. Then join CSI so you actually know how to do the business of architecture, or at least a good portion of the business of delivering a project. Um, so when I go to a CSI meeting and say I'm working through a problem, or I don't know something because I don't know a lot of things, I feel like I know less and less every morning when I wake up. I can ask a question at a CSI meeting and I've got a contractor standing there. I have an architect standing there. I have an engineer standing there and I get such a deeper perspective of having multiple disciplines. It's I'm not in a tunnel in CSI. That and the people are flipping amazing. They, they really are. I have, <laughs> well, I, I officiated my first CSI wedding last year and I'm officiating another one this summer. <laughs> because I'm an ordained minister. There's something I bet you didn't know. Um, not religious in the least bit. So I get a little scared of getting struck by lightning running around calling myself a minister, but they're, they're just some really incredible people. And because there's no competition, there's all the disciplines are there and everybody leaves it outside the door. It's just a different relationship. And I have, I would not have accomplished anything that I've accomplished in the last 10 years had it not been for the people in that organization. This I'm I'm not saying I didn't do the work. I'll take credit for doing the work, but they empowered me and saw things in me and supported me when I couldn't see them myself. And and you just can't get that everywhere. And that's why. I mean, I'm able to they also let me just run run amok. In Portland CSI, I just, you know, because I'm not on the Portland CSI board anymore, but I'll email them and say, hey, I have this idea. They're like, do your thing, Sharice. <laughs> Just whatever. Go ahead. Let us know what you need. It's some, some pretty incredible. It's the people more than anything else in this organization that I can't imagine not being a part of it. And I can't sit around and not do anything with anything that I am a part of. So that that's that's my why for C my why for CSI. Love it. I was listening to your podcast and I had not found it yet. So I really appreciate detailed on our cat and you really just have amazing conversations. And what you seem to be doing is closing that gap of knowledge where architects make documents and set them out there to be built. But you're wanting to close that gap because so much is learned in the field. And as a young architect, it's really hard to to get that ocean of knowledge. There's just endless amounts of information that we can gather and so I really appreciate how you've been doing that. What, I mean, the problem is very apparent, but what first turned you on to wanting to solve that information disconnect? My, my journey through this industry is really unconventional. I actually started working in architecture as a receptionist. And I worked for three men, 
which back in that period of time, we won't, we won't discuss, discuss which decade that was. Um, I worked for three men, um, much older than me that in an era where this wasn't typically the case, they did not care that I was female and they did not care that I was 20 years old. They cared that I was smart and I was constantly saying, but why do we do that? Show me how to do that. And so I am truly a trained in the trenches spec writer. And I was at that first firm for 22 years and they, I wore every hat in that firm. The only thing I didn't do was draw. I am not a designer. Don't pretend to be an architect, not even close. Not sure that I would ever want to be either, but um, I've worn every other hat. And then when they had to close their doors in 2008 with the recession, I went to work for an MEP engineer. So <laughs> cross to the dark side is how I joke around or the light side, depending on how you want to look at it. And I learned from crossing over and working in a different discipline, all the things I was doing wrong on the architecture side in the way I was working with my consultants. I, I've got this completely different vision. And had I not had all of that support and all those people that would teach me things because I didn't, I didn't go to college even. So I really learned on the job. And so it's important for me. I know how valuable that was for me to get that real, that real life education. So lessons learned, whether it's teaching the CDT or doing the podcast all those nuggets of information that I gained over the year were game changers for me in, in how I worked throughout my career. And I'm still getting them every day from somebody. Uh, so that's kind of my, my driver is helping people do better sooner because our architecture schools, in my opinion, are failing us, especially architecture schools, but engineering schools just as much. Even, even construction management schools probably get it the best. Had I known a lot of the things earlier that I know now, that I could have known earlier, I would be running the world. No <laughs> doubt. I mean, I, I don't know about that, but it, it just, it would have been such a game changer for me to have gotten that education much earlier in my career. And I feel a responsibility to give back what I've been given. It was incredible before we were on live, you said how many students you had? With your CDT course, over 800? I don't have all the records. I estimate somewhere between seven and 900 in the last 10 years. That's incredible. My last, my last class was my record breaker, 104 all over the United States and a few outside of the United States. Um, it, the project delivery, you have to deliver a project. It doesn't matter where you live. And nobody's teaching anybody that anywhere else. People are like, you know, why are you selling CSI? You're not going to get it anywhere else, my friends. <laughs> That's, they're the only ones. There's other organizations that teach pieces and parts. But to get the whole picture and understand those relationships and where your risk is, um, it, it truly is a game changer. And, you know, how do we learn right now? Outside of design, how do you learn right now? It's trial by fire education. You screw up and you, your boss gets mad and you figure out why you don't ever want to do that again. I don't think we have to do as much of that in our industry. So I go out there and rope people into my class whenever I can. And I actually get some of them. They spend 12 weeks with me, two hours a week. Um, but we have a lot of CDTs out there. And I'm, that I'm super, super proud of. So you said that um, architecture schools are failing. And we could do a whole show on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, know, you know, that's we could go real deep on that real fast. but. I'm with you on that. What 
what's the biggest thing that needs to change in we'll, we'll just stick with you mentioned engineering schools and and construction management as well and I, and I know a lot of so for instance at ball state where i where i teach like a lot of universities they're bringing many of the disciplines under the same umbrella but if you could make one fundamental change in these curriculums you know pick out whatever school or i mean just it's it's all nab right so what what would be the one fundamental change that you would make or you can pick two or three if you like you know that's an easy one for me it would be having this project delivery education for any discipline if i was queen of the world and i i do have a crown on my desk when i need it you would not be allowed to work in this industry if you didn't have project delivery education some of the most basic pieces of knowledge. I get a lot of young people in my class. A lot of them are studying for their AREs. Some are fresh out of school. I even get some that are in school, but they come out of school with basically zero knowledge of how to protect yourself, how to protect your firm, what what is your responsibility and what you shouldn't touch. And so much inefficiency and so many mistakes are made. We're talking, it could be one class, one class for one term, and the education is already there. CSI fights with colleges constantly trying to get this into their curriculum in the architecture schools, most specifically because the architect is the hub of the wheel on the project, so you hit them first. Most of them just don't want anything to do with it. We're here to teach you how to design. Well, great, you can make pretty pictures. No offense, architects. <laughs> but then the biggest law, uh, biggest payout I've ever personally seen at a firm that I worked for um, on a mistake in a project was a million dollars out of pocket. Now that was that was their deductible. It was actually more than that, but that's what they had to pay out of pocket. Um, here's 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 your first test, your first quiz. What was the fee on that project? The design fee on that project? Million dollars? No. No, million dollars was their deductible. It was more yeah. than that. The total payout to fix this mistake. Ooh, sadly. I, sadly, I think it was only like uh, $400,000, but that's like, I try to write in my documents, like I'm only liable for what you've paid me for. But once it goes to court, I think that goes out the window. It does go out the window. $3,500. Understanding where your risk is and who's responsible for what is critical. But yet they give you none of that in architecture school. And engineers get zero. Some people will argue with me. No, I had a professional practice class. Yeah, and I bet you they talked all about marketing and 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 that kind of that end of the business of architecture, but not actually. There's zero in contract documents yet. What you're held to legally are your drawings and your specs, and they're equal in the eyes of the law. And precedent statements in your contracts don't get you anywhere either. So you know that's something that if I was if it was up to me, you would not be able to work in this industry without that base. And that's still kindergarten in our industry, but at least you're dangerous enough to ask the right questions. That's my goal, to make you all dangerous enough to ask the right questions. <laughs> Release the Kraken. <laughs> uh, we've got to say hello to Christian because he says writing specs may be late for writing about writing or for learning about writing specs. So Christian, welcome. Glad you showed up. Uh, for this conversation. If, uh, Charisse, if you don't know Christian, he's a spec writer based in Ithaca, New York. So I do know who you are. But yeah, I have people in my class who've been in the business 35 years that they're going, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And somehow, you know, it, or 
Well, but I've never had a problem. That's another great statement, but I've never had a problem with it. When I tell them you can't do that, you cannot do that. You're putting yourself at risk. Well, I've never, never had a problem until you have a problem. So, you know, is it worth it for you to keep risking that over something that's so easy to fix? And I'll be perfectly honest. A lot of our contract documents are grossly inefficient because people don't actually follow the standards. They create work they don't even have to have. That's my two cents. You asked. Oh, well, this conversation around risk is it, it hits the core because it's often what drives people to do or not do certain things. And I hear a lot about it, especially former firms like, oh, we don't do that. We can't risk it. And learning to knowledgeably manage that risk seems to be where the power is. I'm curious what the next step is. You've empowered these people with your class. They go out into their projects, but everyone else on their project, you talk about the architect as the hub. What is their first step for onboarding the rest of the team? Well, you know, and that's a difficult one because it kind of depends on the environment and how empowering their firm is. You know, I have a lot of young professionals that uh, struggle to have any kind of voice in their firms and other ones where I had a couple that were in my class the last round from a firm all the way across the country in Philly called me up and said, if we could convince the bosses to fly you out here to do some teaching, would you do it? And I'm like, Philly? Yeah, cheesesteak? Okay, I'll come to Philly. And their bosses have decided to wait a while. So we'll see if they'll actually do it um, over the long run. But what usually happens is it's just like when you some do a random act of kindness. There's a ripple effect that you never see. The same thing happens if you can get one person in a firm to get the base knowledge and all of a sudden they're questioning things that nobody's ever questioned before. They're pulling out their CDT textbook and going, here, it says it right here. You can't do that. A submittal is not a contract document. Did you know that? Do you know how many people don't know that? And so they get a submittal and they mark it up and they make a change to the project and send it back. That's not a contractually accepted change that's not a recognized vehicle to change the contract. So if that thing you just changed on that submittal fails, guess what? The architect just took on the contractor's risk by making that change on the submittal and not doing it with something like a change order. There's so many of that type of thing that people don't know. So they go in and they go and they challenge their bosses. I would say a, a huge chunk of my students these days are in my class because somebody else they know took my class. Or somebody they respect said, you need to take Sharice's class. Right now, that's the only step we have is to try and get the word out there more, which is why I tweet so much. I, Since I heard your intro, she's a tweeter. I, I tweet a little less these days just because Twitter's a little bit of a dumpster fire at the moment. Hopefully that'll change again. But really, that's, that's you know, I'm one person. There are other chapters all over the country that do teach a CDT. I, I, I I want what I want people to know is that CSI is not for spec writers. CSI is for every single person in the industry because just getting that change in mindset, I think, will bring more people to the table to get that education because it, it will be the single most valuable thing they do and they'll use it the, the entire rest of their career, whether that's 10 years or 30 or 40. Yeah, that, that's an important point. And I don't, I, I'm sure that that. Um, I'm sure that that's lost on a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, hey, it's CSI, it's specifications. 
but uh, but obviously so much more. So what was the path between you know CSI, CDT, CSI, and, and all of your involvement there, and then now RCAT and the detailed podcast? How did that come about? How did the podcast itself come about? The path has been a crazy one. About the time I joined CSI, shortly after that, my youngest son left for college. So the last kid was out of the house. And all these things I didn't have time to do before in my career, I could do. I could do whatever I wanted. And so I did all the things. I did all the things. Um, Started speaking, got really involved in CSI, went beyond the chapter board. I was chaired some institute committees for a while, eventually was on the institute board for a few years, going to all the conferences and started speaking. And the more I was speaking, I started speaking more. Total nut job on social media, LinkedIn. Most, mostly LinkedIn and Twitter. And so I started getting to know some people like you <laughs> and Mark LePage and Demetrius and, you know, just peripherally. And I got a call and, and then I, I was part of an effort um, a few years back that, that we called Let's Fix Construction. And the website is still up and we were getting guest blogs from people about again, lessons learned and things in the industry that needed to be fixed. And and we also did a very, for me, it was a a fairly short stint in podcasting, but podcasting is a lot of work (laughs) and, you know, and busy schedules and stuff. And so there was a, a, did that for a while. And I got a call one day from, or an email from Mark saying, you know, we'd like, do you think you might possibly be interested in hosting a podcast and would you like to talk about it? And I'm, you know, I'm looking at an email, looking around like, who's he talking to, (laughs) you know? Um, And so we had a meeting and I'm like, Mark, you know me, right? I just want to make sure you know what you're asking for here. Um, And we talked about it. And then we had, uh, I decided that that sounds interesting and kind of fun, especially since Gable Media is doing all the heavy lifting, you know, doing all of the production and editing and, and all of that. And so then we had a meeting with the the head honchos over at RCAT, and it was kind of funny. And I said, here's my thing. If you guys are really like just wanting this perfectly well-behaved, you know, Barbara Walters, I just want to make sure that you know, you know me because it's not going to be me. I just want to have real conversations with real people. I want to know the challenges they had on their projects and how they solved them. And I don't want to feel like I have to constantly check myself or be worried. I just... You know, I want to look into their eyes and get all the knowledge. And they're like, nope, we're all good. And so we decided let's do 10 episodes and see what happens. And now we're over 50 episodes. <laughs> and I don't know, somewhere it, it just, it it seemed to be working for people and we're having some great conversations talking about real things. And I think that's why it's going so well. We're resonating with people because there's a lot of podcasts out there where you can tell me about your pretty building. And there's a place for those two. Absolutely. But that's not the podcast I wanted to have. I want to hear about your pretty building, but I want to hear about all the things that went wrong getting to your pretty building. And how did you become a better professional? And how'd you fix it? And I tell my guests before we start, my goal by the end of this podcast, and you resonated with me when we were talking before before we started this, um, my goal is to have at least one person run from their computer to their desk and go, I'm going to go fix this because of what I just heard. Even if it's just one, but we have almost a hundred thousand somebody's listening to this thing. So 
uh, that's just kind of, I, I just seem to keep falling into these opportunities. But I have to say that this, I wasn't really sure. Uh, I don't know if I ever told Mark this, and I know he's on here somewhere. So I'm about to out myself. I wasn't really sure I wanted to do this, to be perfectly honest. And so I was really pleased that it was a, we'll just do 10. I am a total addict. I get to meet some of the coolest people, which is what I love about doing it and and hear interesting stories and some personal things too, because I always throw a couple of crazy questions in there. You know, when I, I interviewed a gentleman named Kali Hodges from the Houston Zoo, my first question to him is, if you could be any animal, what would you be? <laughs> you know, and then of course, the, the world world not domination question at the end of the podcast, every single guest gets that question, you know. What is your world domination statement? Because that's another hashtag, total world domination. That's my goal. So, you know, I don't know how I fall into this stuff, except for I think I have sucker written across my head in really large letters. And they know Sharice isn't probably going to say no, although I'm getting better at that. <laughs> I'm picking and choosing. But I, I like doing things that give me joy. And teaching CDT gives me joy. And doing this podcast gives me joy. And not that I want their heads to get big or anything, but Mark and Demetrius are pretty awesome people to work with. And and again, they totally let me do me. I sent out, you know, I they got a message from me recently. We need t-shirts. We need t-shirts that say Gable Stable. <laughs> they're just, I'm, I'm sure they're at their desks rolling their eyes. Almost every time I sent a message, like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> they're, they're a pretty great team to work with and they make me sound really smart. And the guests are happy and they feel the same way. So if, if you're enjoying it, you should be doing it, correct? I love that I, you shared that you started your career by asking questions. And I love that about the podcast that you do seem to find niche areas and you dive into the technical details that would improve someone's daily practice. And you do seem to get to that deeper level that it's so hard. It's so There's so much information to skim over it's hard to dive deep and find those little nuggets. So I, I do find it very valuable in that way. I'm hyper-focused on that because that's really what I want to know. Again, I can go listen to a hundred podcasts about somebody's pretty building. And I really shouldn't say this either. I'm not much of a podcast listener. So it, it's really mind-blowing to me that uh, almost a hundred thousand people are listening to mine. That's what I want to know. I want to know how you got there because my whole career has been finding a way to get there on my own, figuring it out. And people who would answer those questions for me when I couldn't figure it out. So I want them to answer those questions for other people. So I'm looking for those things. It's a little hard sometimes because I'm not an architect. I'm like, I have no idea what you just said, but that sounded really good. But that's the goal, hopefully, is for people to learn. I'm loving doing it though. So they're stuck with me until they boot me out the door. Sounds like that would actually be hard to do. <laughs> Cracking has lots of ways to hold on. <laughs> small firm entrepreneur architects get ready to build a better business with the entree architect podcast where business meets architecture hey it's mark arlapage the host of entree architect podcast join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business if you think there is a problem one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. 
there's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. Well, you know, I think, you know, what you're, what you're saying about, you know, these are, these are the stories, this is what you want to know, right? This is your exploration. This is what you're curious about. And I think, you know, that's what we all want, right? We, we all want the story. We want, all want this exploration, you know, and I think, you know, going back to the beginning of your story, you didn't even go to college. This, I think is the way you said it. But yet here you are, right? You've you've asked the questions and you've learned the things and you've put in the work and you've developed the skills and, and now you're sharing all of those things. And I think that's a journey that can resonate with a lot of people. You know, there's there's obviously there are gonna be a lot of people in this audience that did go to college and you know have degrees in architecture and, and whatnot, but they've still they've still experienced the struggle of coming up in the profession. And I think that's a lot of the value that you share. And, and I, I love the format. You know, I love what you're doing with detailed because you're exactly right. It's I, I could tell you that, you know, I worked on some project, you know, back when I actually did architecture, worked on some project. Great. Who cares? You know, so did so did everybody else. Worked on a museum project. So did a lot of other people. What's unique about that museum? What's what was what stand out about that? that museum. And, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite stories about a museum that I worked on was being just this junior person in the office. Somebody walked up to me one day and handed me a napkin, like a literal napkin sketch with the concept of a stare on it. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I was 25 years old or something, you know, full of attitude and something, but, <laughs> but I looked at that and went, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. And, and, what I was supposed to do is figure it out, take that, turn it into the actual stair in this museum. And at the time, I didn't appreciate that. Now I really wish I had that napkin. Now I, I didn't go to that project. It was in Chicago, and I moved out of Chicago before the construction was complete. I didn't go back to that project and see it for about ten or twelve years. And when I was researching that, uh, going going to this museum, I found out that that stair is the most photographed piece of this entire project. All of a sudden, that's really cool. That's really meaningful to me, right? But that's, it's those little stories that you're pulling out uh, of these, you know, of the different projects of the different buildings. I think that's why it resonates so well with people and, and why 100,000 people want to listen to these stories. It's, it's almost like the backstage pass in a way, right? They're, they're getting what, what they wouldn't see. But that, that's the parts I want to, I, I want to hear. I mean, I actually, I've actually had three episodes that made me cry. I was so touched by 
that a particular one is the Cook School. And, and I'm drawing a blank on the firm name right now. Oh, I feel horrible. Somebody, Mark, look it up and put it on the chat. The Cook School in New York, um, it's a school specifically designed for kids with special needs, predominantly autism, but other special needs as well. And I have a nephew on the spectrum, and I navigated uh, special education with my stepson and the fight to get what he needed in school to actually succeed and learn. And they, they talked to me about the lengths that they went to to get the funding for this school, and then the lengths that they went to to design a school that these kids need um, in spaces that they need, and right down to colors that were chosen and textures and lighting and acoustics, because noise is sometimes an issue for some kids on the spectrum. And I was just so touched by, you know, but dragging out like, wait, I really wanted some details on that school because it really, you know, touched a personal chord with me. But I'm also hoping that somewhere along the way, I'm empowering some younger professionals to ask questions. Because I hear more often than anything from my younger students, somebody will ask me a question and they'll, they'll, they'll preface it with, can I ask you something? Because I, I don't want to ask my boss. I don't want to sound stupid. I am the queen of asking stupid questions. And that's the first thing that I tell them. There is no stupid question. I will ask it. I don't care how dumb I look because I need the answer. And if I get the answer, I'm going to do my job better. But unfortunately, not every firm is particularly empowering to their young professional. I'm not saying you have to do it for them. I, I, I love your napkin sketch story because I love stuff like that. Just give it to me. Let me figure it out. And when I can't, if there's something I can't, then I'll come to you. I have no problem with that. Thank you, PBDW Architects. But there are a lot of young professionals that are not given an environment that empowers them to ask. They're, they feel like, oh, I might not be the next one promoted if I ask this and I look stupid. There should be huge signs hanging in every firm that says there is no stupid question. And so sometimes I ask stupid questions on the podcast, probably regularly, and I don't even realize it some of the times. So that's a little kind of passive aggressive thing I'm hoping to accomplish is, is it's okay to ask. What's the can worst I, thing that's going to happen? Can I ask? <laughs> <laughs> sure, go ahead. How have specifications changed to accommodate a different design process, like integrated project delivery or design build? Because I see the specs, I did them a lot in a design bid build firm. And now I'm out on my own and they are kind of integrated into the documents as best as I can because I don't often get contractors who read a spec book. And so putting them on the drawings, making them, I know this is hitting a lot of uh, tropes here. So where to start? <laughs> I've got trauma response going on here that I have, I do a, a two hour kind of, I call it, let's talk about specs, baby, um, course. And in the sidebar of some of my slides are statements I can't stand. And one of them is the contractor won't read the specs. And so I'll tell you the reason the contractor doesn't read the specs. And I know exactly why. It's because we don't do our doc documents properly. Specs and drawings are two pieces you need to build your building. Specs show your qualitative requirements. Drawings show your quantitative requirements. If your documents are done correctly, your contractor has no choice but to read your specs. What we do is what I call CYA behavior. 
we put all this spec language on our drawings because the contractor is not going to read their spec and I have to have them see it. Um, another cornerstone of spec writing is say it once and say it in the right place. So if you have a piece of information and it belongs in one place, it's going to be either on the specs or on the drawings, depending on the type of information. There's no way any contractor can build a building without reading them both. And so that's where that that problem comes from. The specs don't change from one project delivery to another, at least not the technical specs. Um, your front end is what changes from one project delivery method to another, depending on the contract model. And, and there are advanced certifications as well in CSI to really deep dive into construction contracts and in that language and also into specification writing. But it's it's just some of it you're going to get, even CSI can't give you everything. No organization can give you everything. You're going to get out, get out there and learn, understanding that if you move to this other project delivery method, the whole front end is going to have to change to um, work in concert with the agreements and the general conditions. And at least you know where to start asking questions. I made friends with a whole bunch of spec writers as well. So I could, there's people all over the country I can call and say, okay, I'm going to sound like a moron, but I, I don't know what I'm doing here. What do I do? They're real. We're real good in CSI about helping other people because that's what we're here to do is to make the whole delivery process better. If your drawings and specs are done correctly, you won't do those 3,000 RFIs during construction. That'd be great. But how do specs work if you're doing a design build project? You know, the the contracts change and the division one changes on who's instructing what, but the technical sections don't change. You bring them in right away and yeah. And it, it, I mean, if it's design build, say it's a mechanical firm and, and it's a design build firm, then they're going to be the prime. So there's going to be differences in the front end, but the technical sections for a project are the technical sections. That's what you need to do the job. So it's all the contractual requirements up front that you have to address to pit if you change to different project delivery. Anything else? I'm happy to, I'm here all day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in I one of your <laughs> earlier podcasts, you talked about some sort of checklists for QAQC to kind of help with that, recapturing that backend information with CA and bringing that back into the specs. As a sole practitioner or some of the small practitioners on this call, what kind of checklist, where do we start as small firms um, with those checklists? Are there thing, are there good resources from CSI to start with? So the check, I, I think I know what you're talking about. So the checklist, checklist I'm talking about is something I created just for my use. And it, I created that when I went from architecture to MEP engineering. There's all these places where we have things that cross paths between one consultant or another and the architect that have to be coordinated. And those are the things, that, and, and the, the easiest example is access panel. You know, it's probably the number one thing that goes wrong every time. It's the architect's job to specify access panels, but MEP equipment often needs special access panels. Engineer doesn't know that even what division eight is, let alone there's an access panel section in it. So they go put an access panel in their specs. Architect's supposed to do that. So architect goes and puts an access panel in their specs. Well, there's two different access panels. So here's at the very least an RFI, probably a change order because contractor probably bid the cheaper one and we probably want the more expensive one. Or better yet, both of them leave it out. Architect doesn't put it in theirs because MEP always does it, even though they're not supposed to. There's a whole list of things like that. Fireproofing. Um, where does the pipe end for the building and start? You know, where does civil's pipe end and the building's pipe? Where do they come together? 
uh, there's another one that breaks down all the time. Voltages for equipment. You know, it's not just MEP. There's things with civil, things with different consultants that need to be coordinated. And people always forgot to do it. So when I was working in MEP, I created a checklist for the project managers. Here's all the things in MEP specs that you need to call the architect and say, I need half an hour of your time. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? Here's the access panel. I want to put it in your division eight access panel section because where's the sub going to look for it when they're bidding? They're going to look in division eight. They're not going to look buried in division 23 somewhere where mechanical equipment is. And there are some of those things when you said, you know, where do we go next? Some of those things you can just teach by doing. When I created that checklist, I got this senior principals to buy off on every PM had to. We, they were Their bonuses were dependent on a couple of different things, but one was that they took that checklist and called the architect on every project and coordinated all the items on that list. Another one was that it, they got a, Q, a QA review of their documents before the final set went on the streets. And we set up a whole system for doing that with fresh eyes on a different team. Um, and they would bleed all over it. And I actually kept a spreadsheet of every PM and all their projects and who got their QA reviews done and who didn't. And that was given to the principals. You know, I don't know what happened to it when they did it, but it was part of the evaluation for their bonuses at the end of the year because those QA reviews were so important to have that those fresh eyes look over the whole set before it went out. There's no way to even quantify how much money was saved by doing that. But I saw how they'd often come back and some engineer, senior engineer only, could review them, bled all over those documents. And then they came back to the team, they fixed them, then they went out on the street. You, there'd be no way to even add up what kind of litigation that may have saved or just the time suck that can be CA if you don't have good documents. This is resonating a lot. When I was at a 20-person firm once a month, one person would do a CA review and lessons learned in the field so that we could have lunch together and learn from one another. Another once a month thing was like Revit lessons and how to improve practice. So anyone doing Revit came and had lunch together and we shared. And it's the sharing of stories that helps these details stick. So it's really great to hear how you're doing that. My Sorry, Jeff, I kind of hijacked this as a personal spec writing lesson. Um, <laughs> my last question is, when is the book coming out? <laughs> no. No, no book. I, you know, with the advent of social media, I've got the attention span of a gnat. I actually, that's what I wanted to be when I was young. I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to travel all over the world. And I thought you were going to say a gnat. No. <laughs> no, I don't want to be a gnat. I wanted to travel all over the world and write human interest stories. And so, you know, people ask me all the time, well, why don't you go do that? Well, now I don't have the patience to write, but I kind of get to do this with my podcast, with, it's not my podcast, with our cat's podcast, but that getting to be the host of this podcast, I kind of get to do that. And we may be talking about buildings, but I'm getting to know these people too. I have standing invites in a number of cities. Now, if you're in town, Cherise, let's have lunch or go show you the building, you know? So yeah, I am not writing a book. And I saw that Mark, no book, <laughs> no book. I'm glad you sort of caught yourself there because I think it's not a book, right? But but the podcast, you know, that idea of writing human interest stories. I mean, that's really, in my mind, that's what you're doing with the podcast. Is your your like you said the the pretty the pretty project, the pretty build pretty building, but you're pulling the human interest story out of that project 
um, yeah, it's it's narrow around around the 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 materials and the products and the the details, et cetera. But it is a human interest story about about the uh, about the project. And so I, I think you've I think you've accomplished your goal there. That's fantastic. Well, I, you know, I I believe that you know it's kind of funny. As long as I've worked in this industry. I used to be irritated. I'd go to a conference, you know, and I'm there with a bunch of architects and we'd all go out to lunch somewhere. And you couldn't walk one block without them stopping every three seconds to look at some stupid thing on a building. It's like, I'm hungry. But over time, and the more I've gotten involved in this business and the more that I have under, you know, come to learn and understand more, buildings really do. And I don't know, maybe I'm just a bigger marshmallow now than I've ever been, but I I have walked into the first building that ever moved me to the point of tears was um, St. Peter's in Vatican City. I didn't think that was possible. It's just a building, right? It's just sticks and concrete and, and whatever, but that's not the case. And that, I think, is kind of an epiphany moment that there's more to what we do than just putting up this these sticks and concrete. Um, people have to live and be in that space. And and so the people behind designing those buildings do matter. Another one that I did recently that was amazing, Brooks and Scarpa did this building called The Six. It won awards, The Six, on Skid Row in Los Angeles. This is one of the ones that made me cry. And, and they just happened to be here just this last week in Portland for our Portland CSI annual industry forum. They were our keynote speakers. So I got to meet them in person after doing the podcast a few months ago, but we got into this big conversation, you know, this, this, the six is this very modern cube looking thing that does not look like affordable housing for veterans and formerly homeless people. You know, it's just not what people normally do. You know, it's just like, here's this box as cheap as you can get it. And this is a really notable looking building. And, and so we talked about that and I, you know, I don't listen to my own podcasts, so I don't know how much made the final cut. Um, because I think I sound terrible in all of them, but they told me about the work and effort they put into actually meeting with the homeless community. Like one of the things that they had done is moved the courtyard from street level. They had this big outdoor space and and the community that they were meeting with the veterans and, and the formerly homeless people told them we wouldn't feel safe with the courtyard there because it's just, you could just walk right up from the street and the buildings on Skid Row. So they moved this big outdoor space to the second floor so that it could be secured from people walking by on the street. Everything that they did in this building was very much with the humans that would be living there in mind and what would make them feel safe and secure and feel like they mattered. Those kinds of stories, you start looking at buildings in a different way when you get the people behind them, where, where all of a sudden now you can see the heart behind what you're looking at in front of you. So that, yeah. I, I I get my warm fuzzy fix out of pretty much every episode. <laughs> well, that's I'm, that's good. I'm glad that you do, and I'm glad that you're pulling these human interest stories out of out of uh, out of the podcast. I think that's really important. I think that's why it's popular. So I, I know we're a few minutes past time, but if you've got a, another minute, maybe the last question is: What's on the bucket list? What uh, what's a project or a building or or a firm that you would really love to have as a guest um, that you just haven't gotten yet. 
Okay, so I call it my adventure list. Just so you know, bucket list sounds like you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> so I like to call it my adventure list. Of course, that includes a lot of things be, besides, believe it or not, on occasion, I do have a life outside of this industry. Maybe not as much as I should. Oh, man, that's a hard question because I've kind of just been tackling everything I want to tackle. I would love to be able to travel more and speak more to people in person. I mean, I I was doing a lot of public speaking before COVID hit, and it's just now starting to pick up again. But the piece I'm really missing right now is, is seeing people more more in person, you know, workshops, maybe. I don't, I don't know, because I'm kind of just doing it when I want to do it or a new opportunity comes up. I'm not being afraid of it. And I'm just, this wasn't on my list, but I'm yeah. loving every minute, minute of it. And it just kind of came out of, came out of nowhere. I don't know. Maybe Mark was drinking that. <laughs> Tackling <laughs> is, it. Is he still online? I, I don't know. I don't really, I'm very much a, in the now kind of person these days. I've been a planner. I'm still a planner, but I've been a, you know, figure things out 10 years advance person most of my life. And I kind of just roll with the punches right now. So I I don't know if I could answer that. I can't think of any one big thing unless, you know, that the whole queen of the world thing that stays on my list. (laughs) Well, well, there's that, there's that, but you've got to put the, got to put the crown back on. But I, I think that in itself is, is a, a good lesson, right? You're rolling with it. You're you're not being afraid of it. Uh, you mentioned before say, saying saying no, and you know, just a reminder that in our contracts we set boundaries, right? So, so that's that's where the no might might come in. But but uh, I really I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing because um, I think the podcast itself is is unique, and I think it's great, and I think. I mean, it's obvious that you're making a huge impact, not only in the in the industry, but especially with um, younger people in the industry and in the future of where all of this is headed. So um, I appreciate you for having this conversation with us and for the podcast and everything that you're doing as a teacher and mentor is just fantastic. And it's great to see you. Um, I'll see you in San Francisco, by the way, but, yes. but it's AIA. great to see you here. Absolutely. I'm trying to convince them to do a, because there's going to be, our cat's going to be doing some things at the booth and I'll be at the RCAT booth. If anybody wants to come say hi, um, I was trying to c- convince them that they should do like a where's Waldo thing, but a where's the Kraken thing <laughs> and, and like give prizes to people who can find me in San Francisco <laughs> when I'm not at the booth. It's game um, on. Yeah. Game on. Where's the cracker? <laughs> um, no, thank you it. so much for having me. This was fun. And I haven't seen you in forever. So it was really yeah. nice to get to yeah. say hi and talk. And but see we'll you see soon. you. See you soon. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sharice. This is great. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use, maybe in your practice or even in your life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, every week in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. 
And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one God. that came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.